From Share Profits, brought to you from Wales by 30 Yards, this is the Share Profits Radio Show, episode 29, for the 30th of April, 2020. And here's your host, Tom Winifrith. Hi, it is indeed Tom Winifrith with the 29th edition of Share Profits Radio, and I am indeed talking to you from Wales, albeit only by 30 yards. It's been a strange week for me uh, because I found myself at the centre of a case of defamation, uh, but also uh, a case which involves aim-listed companies telling lies to investors. Uh, The good news is it's not me who is going to be receiving lawyers' letters from eight different entities within the next few days. Uh, That honour goes to a gentleman called Mark Turner. Let me explain uh, before I get on to the bad news for Mark, uh, if he is listening uh, today. On the 17th of April, a company called Bidstack uh, put out a statement uh, via RNS Reach, uh, which was untrue. For those who don't know what RNS Reach is, uh, it looks like an RNS, uh, but it's uh, meant to be for the conveying of non-financially material information. Uh, marketing. So you've got a new product. It's not going to cause you as a company to alter your sales guidance, uh, but you thought you'd tell people about it. As such, RNS Reach has become a forum for companies to ramp uh, their shares uh, with wholly spurious announcements. The RNS Reach from Bidstack, a company which is run by a man called James Draper, a man with a track record of telling outright brazen lies to investors, uh, the RNS Reach uh, was headlined Independent Research Report. Uh, And it then purported to show that a report compiled by a market research agency, Lumen, uh, had validated the technology of Bidstack. Uh, In the first paragraph, again, it was stressed that this report was independent. Four times, or three times in the week that followed, uh, I pressured AIM Regulation and the Nomad uh, Spark Advisory, who had signed off on this nonsense, to... Uh, forced the company uh, to admit that the report was not independent. Uh, It wasn't independent because Bidstack had paid for and commissioned it. Uh, Eventually, 10 days after the original RNS reach, Bidstack was forced, uh, eventually, by the regulators as a result of my pressure, by then four emails to come clean and admit that it had commissioned the report, it had paid for the report, and it was not independent. Bidstack had deceived investors. Some investors in Bidstack uh, have grown rather uh, tired of the way that on now, I think, three occasions, I have called out Bidstack for telling outright lies to investors. They have also grown tired of the fact that I have pointed out uh, for months on end that the company was owing the market a profits warning or a lack of sales warning, uh, and eventually the company being forced to come clean, uh, not before uh, uh, Mr. Draper, uh, the liar who runs this company, had sold hundreds of thousands of pounds worth of shares. 
And uh, some of the shareholders in Bidstack have grown rather tired of me pointing out that the company will, uh, within a month, uh, be insolvent if it does not raise fresh equity in the market. It simply will not be able to meet payroll at the end of May unless it has raised fresh funds. So some shareholders have grown rather tired of that. On uh, last Friday, a new blog, uh, Aim Corruption Exposed, appeared on the internet. Apparently, it was produced by an investigative financial journalist who was a woman, Idella Taggart. Uh, The odd thing was, if you did a Google search, uh, you could find that there was only one reference to Idella Taggart uh, producing anything uh, uh, at all on the internet, and that was this report. Uh, so she wasn't exactly a high-profile financial journalist, and immediately anyone with half a brain cell would have smelled a rat. Needless to say, AIM Corruption Exposed uh, wasn't exposing Bidstack. Indeed, it was denying uh, that uh, James Draper, the CEO, was someone who had lied to investors. It merely said that I was alleging that he was Uh, It's a slam-dunk fact. He is a liar. He's a proven liar. He's a multiple liar. Uh, But it was just saying that I was alleging that he was. And it then went on uh, to attack me for my coverage of Bidstack, suggesting that I was doing it for various reasons. I was doing it uh, to help a company called Gefinity, which my friend Nigel Ray is a big shareholder in. It ignored the fact that I've never written about Gefinity and that the Share Profits website, which I edit, uh, has been uh, consistently very bearish about Gefinity. Uh, just three or four weeks ago, uh, my colleague Steve Moore, a, a, a man who has worked with me for all bar three weeks of his career in financial journalism, which is now almost a decade old, if not longer, uh, Steve wrote a damning sell note on Gefinity, and it was only the latest in a long line. That was clearly spurious. Uh, there was a suggestion that I was being critical of Bidstack Uh, because I am very supportive of uh, the State of Israel, and some uh, uh, Israeli companies apparently are competitors of Bidstack. It's that old idea of a great big Jewish conspiracy. Those Jews, they control journalists, they'll do anything to make money. It really was pretty sordid stuff. Finally, there was a convoluted uh, uh, web thing. I'm linked to a gentleman called Wazim Shakur. No financial links at all. He's a mate of mine, but I'm friends with lots of people. And uh, 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 a company uh, which had sponsored this podcast in the past had invested in another company which had an investment in a company which was a competitor of Bidstack. And it was that which was driving me uh, 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 to attack Bidstack. It was all complete and utter nonsense. Uh, The odd thing is that people think that putting out complete and utter nonsense in this way, uh, it makes no difference really what's going to happen to Bidstack. I could fall under a bus tomorrow. It's not going to alter the fact that this company can't meet payroll in just a few weeks' time. Anyhow, I put out a rebuttal on the Saturday uh, of last week, uh, and you can see that it's outside all paywalls on share profits. And on the Sunday, uh, having noted that the clueless poltroon uh, who put uh, uh, this together had actually left clues to his identity or uh, statements of his identity in the uh, uh, coding, I exposed him.
for who he was. Uh, he wasn't a female financial journalist. He was a gentleman called Mark Turner. He lives near Northampton. He's an IT programmer. Not a very good one if you leave clues to your name in the code. If I was his employer, I'd be a bit worried about that. Uh, we also exposed how Mr Turner uh, had been going through his social media uh, uh, trying to cover up uh, uh, his links to Bidstack, to Bidstack CEO, James Draper, uh, and to cover up uh, and to make his sort of erase his history. Sadly, he did all of that after I had uh, organised screen grabs of his social media history, which showed not only his close links to Bidstack and to James Draper, but the fact that he was trying to cover this up as well in a most comical way, a cat-handed and amateurish way. And again, an article exposing that is on share profits and it's outside paywalls. You can read it all. Why do I mention this? Well, it's not only me uh, who was defamed in this article, but a whole list of people. And I don't really care if, if an idiot like uh, Turner... You know, Turner may fantasise about being a woman. That's, that's his problem. A tolerant guy, if he, if he wants to transition, that's his problem. And the attacks on me are so ludicrous. Uh, you know, the idea that I'm sort of being dangled by sort of Israeli bankers and all this sort of thing, it is so ludicrous. I, I really don't care. I'm not going to sue him for libel. Uh, other people are. Uh, uh, by the time this goes out, or perhaps uh, a couple of days later, because it's hard to serve papers on people, Mr Turner will be getting papers from eight different entities uh, claiming that the article was libelous and defamatory and seeking material damages. Uh, this has the potential to ruin Mr Turner's life. It's not hard to track him down. Uh, uh, I found his address uh, and home details and, of course, of, of being a bit fine, uh, upstanding citizen, have passed this on to the people who were defamed in the article, the other people defamed in the article. Uh, so Mr Turner will get these papers. It's going to be costly for him. Uh, if I was him, I would be taking down his blog, apologising and paying costs and a few uh, small damages now. Or he could uh, fight it to the last thing, in which case he will be bankrupted. Um, why do I mention this? Well, it should be a warning to folks out there that you think you're posting stuff anonymously on the internet. And you may say, oh, but it's all just, you know, mates in jest. It doesn't really matter. Well, it's, you may think that, but if you damage the commercial interests of people by posting things which, are, which are, are defamatory and untrue, you could get into trouble. Just think when you're posting these things, uh, people probably have kids who might read them. They may be sensitive. It is a warning to folks out there. They think that they can post stuff, whatever they like, on bulletin boards or on these anonymous blogs, but actually you can be tracked down and you can get yourself into a lot of trouble. That's just a general point, and I'm happy to break the news in this uh, edition of Share Profits Radio that Mr Turner is going to have one or two things to deal with over the next few weeks. Well, there you go. Um, but there is a wider point here that this is typical behaviour of private investors when they see a company which they've invested in uh, coming under some degree of scrutiny. If it wasn't for my work and that of share profits, I somehow suspect that the uh, lie put out by Bidstack on the 17th of April in its RNS reach would have gone un undetected and uncorrected. 
And shares went up on that announcement. So there were some people who clearly believed that it was independent validation of the Bidstack technology. Uh, and uh, the nomad, Mr. Mark Brady, a clueless fool who works for uh, Spark Advisory, had signed off on that RNS. Uh, the way that AIM works is regulation, uh, uh, verification of releases like that, is something that AIM regulation doesn't deal with. It's not within their remit. They leave that all to nomads. It is only if AIM regulation is brought in because the nomad has failed uh, that it gets involved in the process. Clearly, James Draper, who runs Bidstack, he's quite happy to mislead investors. Uh, Turner, uh, sorry, Brady um, at at Spark Advisory, he seemed to have turned a blind eye to this deception. It is only because I sent four distinct emails to AIM Regulation in the end, uh, involving Marcus Stuttart, the head of AIM Regulation, that Bidstack was forced to put out this correction. Now, the people who put this anonymous block together, Mark Turner, I'm sure he didn't work alone. Uh, uh, the disclosure process, if this does eventually go to court, we'll see exactly if he was working with other people and indeed what his connections were to James Draper, who runs Bidstack. Now, that will all come out in the wash, and I, and I think that could be quite interesting. Um, but the people who did it seem to think that not attacking me will somehow distract from what uh, uh, Bidstack is up to. Maybe it did for a little while, but I suspect that these dirty tricks now really are focusing everybody's attention on Bidstack and the fact that it is showing itself very willing to deceive investors in a quite organised fashion. You have to ask yourself, why is it prepared prepared to do this? Because if you or I were running an aim-listed company, I very much doubt we would take the risk of putting out misleading statements uh, or of telling lies when appearing on podcasts with Justin the Clown or other things which, which Bidstack has done. You or I wouldn't do that because in theory, if not in practice, sadly, uh, that's the sort of thing which can land a chief executive in very hot water indeed. Well, there's this old phrase, isn't there? Desperate times call for desperate measures. Uh, Bidstack is running out of money. Uh, uh, even the commissioned research that it has got, uh, had uh, done with um, paid-for researchers uh, suggests that it will run out of money at the end of May. Uh, I think it's possibly going to be sooner than that. Uh, but it's round about, well, <laughs> the next three or four weeks. This company runs out of money. It can't pay any of its bills. It is in a desperate position. The market may have rebounded very sharply from the coronavirus sell-off, but we will come to that a bit later in this podcast. But it's still well down on that. And the sentiment towards small companies, unless you can show you've got a direct link with uh, fighting coronavirus or even claim a direct link, whether you have or not is another matter, uh, is still pretty tough. Moreover, the shares in Bidstack are now 6.875p. Uh, they were 20p, by the way, when Mr. Draper uh, sold last autumn while sitting on a, uh, on a lack of profits and lack of sales warning, which, which, which he failed to disclose. And people may look at that with hindsight and think that was a bit dodgy, selling all those shares, hundreds of thousands of pounds worth of shares at 20p, uh, only uh, uh, to be forced to have uh, that warning within weeks. But um, they're now 6.875p, market cap 13, 14, 15 million, something like that. 
there is no way that any institutional shareholder is going to touch this stock. Institution by which I mean fund manager, unit trust manager, private client broker. Uh, a bucket shop counts as an institution but isn't really an institution. There's no way that a proper institutional investor will touch this stock because A, it's too small, B, it's too illiquid. Uh, you can't sell a million quid's worth of bid stock and buy and sell them just like that. So that's another reason why a, a serious institution won't get involved. Uh, and uh, then the fact that the company's run by a liar and is happy to deceive investors. The company's missed every single target that it's ever set. When this company uh, came to market via an RTO, it was forecasting sales of nearly 6 million quid for or calendar 2019. Uh, we now know that sales in the first half were about 27,000, or just under 27,000, it's unlikely that the company's done full year sales of much more than £100,000. So that's a big miss when you're forecasting £6 million at the time, or nearly £6 million at the time of the IPO. So having missed all its targets, having lied to investors, with the stock being so small, being illiquid, with the issue of the share sales by the CEO uh, last fall, all of those things, no institution's going to touch this stock with a barge pole. Uh, so what is the way out for Bidstack? Uh, is the stock uh, generating enough liquidity for a death spiral to perform uh, adequately? I'm not so sure it would. Possibly that might be one way out. Uh, but could it really hope to raise £750,000 a month from a convertible loan note facility? I'm not so sure it could. Uh, certainly, uh, uh, if the shares slip anymore, uh, that could prove very problematical indeed. So it looks like it has to raise money via a hugely discounted placing with a bucket shop, which is exactly why it's trying to ramp the shares with spurious announcements. Uh, so you can tell what the company's up to. You can tell what the game is here. And when you get shareholders behaving in that way, you know, I did a, an interview for the Share Profit Shares show, which I'll mention a bit later, with Gabrielle Grego. I recorded that today. And uh, he was talking about how uh, different times he's produced bare dossiers on companies. He, he's had different reactions. Uh, people reporting him to the authorities, trying to get him into trouble with the regulators, people threatening legal action. Uh, and sometimes it is the reaction of uh, 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 shareholders. And when you get a frenzied reaction from private shareholders, it tends to suggest they're not very bright. Uh, and that is perhaps another sign that you are onto a winner as a bear. Anyhow, the whole episode uh, doesn't reflect well on Bidstack, and it just shows this is a company in crisis. But it's been an interesting week for me. Uh, I can now move on. I, I think Mr. Turner uh, is going to have an interesting week ahead. Uh, enjoy it, fella. You deserve it. This podcast is brought to you at no cost. It's free because it's sponsored by a company called Open Orphan. It was one of my tips of the year. At, from memory, I think it was well under 5p that, uh, 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 offer price of well under 5p that I tipped it at. Uh, last time I looked, they were 8.2p to sell, 8.3p to sell. It's been a pretty good tip of the year, uh, given what's happened to the wider market. Uh, anyhow, Open Orphan sponsor uh, this company. The uh, Open Orphan has just put up a new corporate presentation. I'll put a link to that so you can read it. Uh, it has got a COVID exposure, so I suspect that's one reason why the shares are moving higher. Uh, it owns the UK's uh, only, I think, uh, uh, isolation facility uh, uh, for people who have coronavirus, where they can do tests on vaccines, etc. It has a number of corona angles, but 
that's kind of irrelevant. Oh, it's not irrelevant. It's going to be uh, contribute to profits. Uh, but it's only one small part of the business. There is a very strong uh, uh, non-corona business, the core business, uh, which is, I believe, moving towards material profitability, which is why I think the shares are still cheap. Uh, uh, I am well in the money on this one, uh, but wouldn't consider selling any stock for anything less than 10p. And I think we're going to be at 10p very, very soon. Anyhow, I'll put the link up to the presentation. If you want to find out more about Open Orphan, Read the presentation, follow it on Twitter at Open Orphan, uh, or indeed uh, uh, come along to the Share Profits Shares show on May the 9th, uh, and I'll put a link up to that too. Uh, and you can see Cathal Friel uh, doing an interview with me, a video interview uh, uh, about the company. Uh, he'll be uh, online on the day to take your questions in a chat room at the Shares show. But of course, the main attraction are very, very, very detailed interviews. Uh, with some of the biggest names in investment. Uh, Carson Block of Muddy Waters, big, big bear raider at the moment. Gabrielle Grego, another short seller. Uh, uh, Evil Knievel, Lucian Myers, uh, 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 Matty Earl, uh, all of those famous British short sellers on the short tack. Uh, and you'll get some real insight from them. I'm doing a, a, an hour-long presentation on the nature of fraud, how to construct a fraud, how to list a fraud, and how to manage a fraud on the AIM market, uh, and another presentation on something I'll, I'll tell you more about later. Uh, and then on the bull tack, you have great investors like Mark Slater, uh, Britain's best small-cap fund manager, um, Paul Jordan of Amati, uh, Vin Murray, the queen of tech, Luke Johnson, controversial figure uh, uh, from the business world, but the way he floated Pizza Express, genius in that respect, uh, uh, and many other people, gold gurus, Malcolm Byrne, Peter Hambro, Dominic Frisbee, James Dellingpole, the list goes on and on. Uh, all of the Share Profits writers will be serving up uh, six share tips, and they will do those in hour-long videos. So there'll be some detail on each of their tips, both bull and bear tips. Anyhow, the show goes live at 9 o'clock on May the 9th, uh, but the videos, there'll be about 70 hours of video footage, which you obviously can't just watch in one day. The videos and the access to the show will stay open until Christmas. Uh, tickets are 9 and uh, uh, please do buy one, and I'll see you on May the 9th. I'll put a link to that as well with this podcast. Right, uh, should we take a short break? I'll be back after that. Welcome back to the second part of this 29th edition of Share Profits Radio. Since I spoke to you last, it's been quite fun owning shares. Uh, they just zoom ahead every single day. Uh, it seems like the good times are back. The shares that are zooming ahead the most are ones which have some relation to the coronavirus uh, uh, epidemic or rather the government's reaction to the non-epidemic, uh, either in a real way or in an imaginary way or in the sort of hopeful way, the same way uh, that I hope that I might get lucky with Cheryl Cole. It's maybe not grounded in reality, but there's still the hope there. Just mention COVID uh, as a positive, that uh, you hope to develop an app to track its progress in Greenland. Bang! 25% on your share price. Uh, that's the optimism way. 
And it's not just though the COVID stocks, it's the whole market. It's very much like the dot-com boom. And again, it's odd, I speak to you here, how many of you listening today were actively involved in the stock market in the dot-com boom and bust? I suppose to have been actively involved in the stock market, you probably have to be in your 40s. Odds are you have to be in your 40s or 50s. So there are a whole generation of people out there who've been buying and selling shares who can't remember what happened in the dot-com boom and bust. Just a brief recap. Uh, The market puked in 1998 because of the Russia crisis, uh, the problems with a massive hedge fund run by Nobel Prize winners, LTCM, long-term capital management, which blew up and the contagion spread throughout the markets. The response to that was easy money policies from the Fed and the other central banks. Uh, And that coincided with a macro event. (laughs) The internet, not it was invented, but it came of age. Uh, Anything.com went through the roof. Now, that led the market higher. The whole market zoomed ahead. There were some stocks which were unfashionable, uh, old world stocks, uh, anything to do with gold. They did rather badly, but everything else was just just the old ones are unfashionable, and they tended to underperform. But the whole market was driven higher, uh, but with the dot-com stocks being the cheerleaders. Of course, that bubble burst. My point in mentioning that is is just to say that uh, we have a similar event here of uh, zero interest rates and the threat of unparalleled quantitative easing. But also uh, that it's whilst it's the coronavirus stocks that are leading the market higher, you look on the leaderboard and you see all sorts of rubbish going up. People just suddenly feel risk off. I wonder why that is. Uh, There might have been people three or four weeks ago who were speculating that shares collapse because we know we're going into a recession. Of course, we are. The contraction in economic activity uh, over the next two or three months uh, is going to be something that no one has seen in living memory. Uh, I maintain that the uh, last time we saw this rapid a contraction in economic activity would have been in 1665, although I don't have data uh, to prove that. Uh, I challenge anyone to find a a, a period more recently where we've seen this big a a downturn. However, the hope, a few weeks ago at least, and I think Goldman Sachs produced research on it, which means it's almost certainly wrong, uh, was that the recovery would be a V-shaped one. I'd say the economic activity would tank, but then we'd come out of lockdown and everything would be back to normal, uh, or relatively back to normal. I don't think anyone now believes that. It is ironic today, as I speak, the FTSE 100 has gone up by 150 points, but we've had some really very, very bad news from big companies. Barclays warning of the fact it's going to have huge provisions as people, or rather small businesses, I think mainly, default on their loans. Uh, we've had a trading statement from Next, which was diabolical, uh, and a market downturn on where they were expecting to be just a few weeks ago. But the really interesting one is British Airways warning that it's going to be handing out 12,000 P45s and black bags. Why is it doing that? Well, uh, British Airways has responded to the fact that no one's flying at the moment by furloughing staff. But what it's now saying very clearly is that when the lockdown ends, it simply doesn't expect uh, air travel uh, to return to pre-COVID levels. 
And of course, it's right. I don't think anyone's quite worked out yet. What is the rules going to be for social distancing on aeroplanes? Are you going to have to have one empty seat between every passenger seat? I don't know. What's more importantly is, are people going to feel comfortable going back in aeroplanes? <clears throat> right now, a YouGov survey suggested that only 15% of us would feel comfortable going in an airplane. I think that's going to change. The number's going to go up pretty pretty dramatically uh, 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 because people will realise a lot of us have already had the coronavirus. Uh, most young people will realise that they're unlikely to pop their clogs from the coronavirus. There's only 140 people in Britain under the age of 40 have died from coronavirus. Nearly all of them had underlying health conditions, so... If you're healthy and under 40 or under 45, you're pretty safe. So I think the number will rise up at the moment. There's sort of fear. That fear will dissipate. But even so, uh, let's say the number goes back to 50% or 60%. You can't run an airline, even if they were allowed to use every seat on the plane. You can't run an airline at 60% capacity and hope to make a profit. British Airways is recognising that. It's recognising it's going to have to have fewer flights and therefore it's firing its staff. And that is an indication of what's going to happen to the economy. It's not going to be a V-shaped recovery. It's going to be anything like sort of an L with a slight upslope of the, of the, the, the parallel thing, uh, an L-shaped recovery. I think at the, the, the moment, there's a lot of people sitting around in the sun and you know, you're being furloughed. There's nine million people being furloughed. We're sitting, they're sitting in the sun. They're on full wages. It's a bit like a long holiday. I think maybe people are getting a bit bored now, but it's like a long holiday. Anyhow, it's been sunny, except, of course, here in Wales, where, where it's raining all the time. But in the rest of the country, it's been sunny. Uh, things change when the furlough ends. When the government eases the lockdown, you would have thought it is going to end the process of furloughing. I think it's going to come under enormous pressure to taper off the process of furloughing. Even so, businesses will pretty quickly, within two or three months, they will find themselves in a position where they are back to a largely their cost base pre-coronavirus, even if there is a tapering in in terms of wage costs. But they'll be getting back there quickly. Meanwhile, demand will be markedly lower. There will be the 3 million people who've lost their jobs. Well, they're not going to be buying anything. And then there's going to be a lot of other people who are nervous. They might lose their jobs. They're going to be buying less. And then there are going to be the people who are shit scared. They're going to die of coronavirus. And so they're still sitting at home and refusing to go out. So all sorts of reasons demand will be less. It, unless you run a business, you don't quite realise the operational gearing of it. If you're running a restaurant or, or whatever, for any sort of business, if you are running at, in good times, at 100%, you'll make it capacity, you're making a profit. Probably at 90% or 80%, you might make a profit. If that's your uh, uh, capacity utilisation in a good time, if you suddenly find that you have a 20% downturn because of the people who've lost their jobs, the people who are afraid they're losing their jobs, the people who are afraid they're going to get die, and suddenly you're running at 60%, you're going to be making a loss. And it may only seem like a 20% reduction or 20 percentage point reduction. Uh, and, you know, BBC commentators may say, well, you can weather that storm. They don't understand the idea of operational gearing and how that's going to cause many, many more businesses to fold. 
The other issue, of course, is cash. Businesses don't run on profits, they run on cash. And during the lockdown uh, and during the uh, government support package, uh, all business people, uh, even share profits, have been blessed. We don't have to pay uh, a VAT bill, which we should have paid in April. We get a postponement through to June, uh, or is it July? So there is delay there. We're sitting on the cash. We actually have it in our bank account. We can pay it when it comes due. But there are other businesses not having to pay their PAYE or their VAT. They're not saving it. They're using that VAT. They're using that VAT now just to keep themselves going. They are maybe are delaying payments to suppliers. They're paying delaying payments to landlords. They're doing the cash they save from that is what is keeping them going. But it's not fat that they're eating. It's sort of muscle that they're wasting away. Because when we get back to the new normal, suddenly not only are they going to be facing the fact that they're losing money because they're back at pre-COVID costs, but they have lower demand, so they're losing money. But suddenly, all those bills which have been deferred, they haven't been cancelled. Your VAT, your POI has not been cancelled. It's just been deferred, suddenly before due. So there's going to be a real cash flow crisis. And don't expect the banks, once the heat's off them, uh, uh, at the moment, if banks you know, call in, the, the, put, put businesses into administration because, because they've got no money, uh, they're, they're, they are lambasted as being heartless bastards in the face of this COVID crisis. Once lockdown's ended, the banks can go back to normal and they will be pulling the plug. So all of that makes me think that you're going to have very many reasons why it's not going to be a V-shaped recovery, it's going to be an L-shaped recovery. And I sense people are now getting their head around that. So why on earth are shares racing ahead? Well, of course, shares uh, and the stock market looks uh, 18 months ahead. Uh, And so it's not looking, I think, to the recovery, but it's looking, uh, one believe, I suspect, uh, to the hope that all this printing of money and zero interest rates is going to cause another asset bubble. Look back to the great financial crisis. The response of policymakers, led by Gordon Brown, heaven help us, the Welsh government where I live, they're calling Gordon Brown uh, uh, to advise them uh, uh, on how to rebuild things after coronavirus. I mean, I despair. Words fail me. Uh, uh, I mean, where do you start on that? Anyhow, Gordon Brown saved the world economy in 2008 after the great financial crisis. No, he didn't. What happened was that uh, we had low interest rates and quantitative easing. That didn't improved the standards of living of most people. There was zero increase in real wages or minimal increase in real wages in the decade following the great financial crisis. What we had was an asset bubble. If you had a portfolio of stocks and shares, bonds, uh, real estate, uh, you owned loads of houses, fine art, fine whiskey, whatever, it, so its price went up materially. Uh, the purchasing power of pounds in your pocket against these hard assets was uh, uh, was reduced greatly. So it was an asset bubble, which obviously favoured uh, those who started the period with money uh, and with assets. The rich, uh, the poor, didn't enjoy the asset bubble and had no increased purchasing power because assets cost more. And their real wages weren't going up. So it increased the wealth gap. And that is maybe what folks expect to happen next time around. And on that basis, why would you stay in cash earning 0% when you think there's going to be an asset bubble? 
Well, maybe that's why shares are heading higher. It seems to me there's going to be a lot of systematic shocks to the system. We've already had people warning that there is no earnings guidance uh, for the rest of the year. I wonder whether you're going to find that actually uh, 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 there are going to be profits warnings followed by profits warnings. Valuations will then, in terms of earnings, look pretty stretched. And it will be hard for some firms who are struggling to keep going to be able to refinance going forward. All I'm saying is I can understand why people are reluctant to hold cash right now. The yield on your money is more or less nothing. I can understand that there is an argument that we are going to see another asset bubble once we get through this current phase of the worst recession since 1665. It's not the worst recession since 1665. It's the biggest downturn since uh, uh, 1665 on a sort of two, three month view. But in terms of the recession, which could follow, it could be just sort of grim. Think the early 1970s. Uh, under Ted Heath, the three-day week. Uh, That knocked 3 or 4% off British GDP, although there were predictions that it would be much worse. Uh, But it could be worse. It could be 1930s. We don't know. The truth is nobody knows. And there are wild cards out there. Uh, What happens, for instance, if someone discovered a vaccine tomorrow? I'm not saying that's going to happen. There are wild cards out there. We don't know. But it's going to be pretty grim. And not all companies will survive. When we were back at uh, 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 with the FTSE at its lows of three or four weeks ago, uh, you looked at stocks and you were saying these stocks, uh, if they survive, are phenomenally cheap. And an awful lot of stocks were pricing in the possibility that they wouldn't survive, certainly at the smaller cap end. And now you look at you look at stocks across the board, and there are far fewer stocks which are pricing in, uh, in my view, the possibility that they won't survive, uh, and an awful lot of stocks which are pro- pricing in a pretty spectacular recovery in earnings. I'm not sure that either of those are right. Uh, for me, uh, it pays to remain pretty cautious on the market, although it is very frustrating if you are sitting on cash uh, uh, where, uh, uh, that you are earning such a minimal return. There are still value opportunities out there, uh, uh, but you have to be careful. Um, that's it for, for this uh, section. Let's take a short break, and then I come back on the issue uh, of why companies mislead with another example, not Bitstack, but another one uh, over uh, the past couple of weeks. Uh, I'll speak to you in a few minutes. It's not minutes that I has a break, just a few seconds. I'm back with the third part of Share Profits Radio 29. This show, as I keep reminding you, is sponsored by Open Orphan. For the next couple of weeks at least, uh, Open Orphan is an aim-listed company where I should declare I'm a shareholder. I'm well in the money with shares at 8.2, 8.3p. Um, it does benefit from coronavirus. I get some work from there, but that's not the real core of the investment story. So I don't regard it as part of the, the corona bubble I referred to earlier. 
Um, I would be hopeful that I would be selling my shares at 10p plus uh, uh, in a very short space of time. Uh, they were a tip of the year of mine at under 5p, so, you know, 100% return, not bad. You know, these things happen. Uh, folks say I couldn't tip a waiter. I would suggest that one's looking pretty good. Um, if you want to find out more about Open Orphan, I've put a link up to their latest presentation, uh, and you can always follow them on Twitter at Open Orphan. And, as I mentioned earlier, Cathal Friel is one of 30 CEOs who will be presenting at the Share Profit Shares show on May the 9th. And the videos will stay up all year. So there'll be an interview between me and Cathal uh, uh, up there. And I'm sure he'll be popping into the show during the day. So if you want to ask him questions on the interactive part of the website, you'll be able to do that. And also quiz some of the other 30 CEOs who are presenting I have recorded quite a few of the interviews with the CEOs. Uh, I'll have a hectic few days ahead recording the rest. Uh, I have to say there are two which have already caught my eye and where I am almost certain to buy shares myself. Won't tell you yet, although I think I will be revealing as much on the day. Uh, in my section where I'm doing uh, 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 some share tips, it's one of the things I'm doing. My main presentation is, of course, on fraud. The highlight of the show are the main stage speakers. I had been assuming that our 16 main stage presentations would be around about 14 hours of content. Uh, I think I've got that completely wrong. I think it's likely to be closer to 25 hours of content. Some of those presentations on the main stage, mainly in the form of Q&As with me, uh, a two-way interview, are incredibly long but incredibly detailed, uh, uh, going into real detail uh, either on buying opportunities, uh, when you're talking to people like Mark Slater, uh, incredible analysis there, uh, or selling opportunities, uh, uh, the short analysis, the, the frauds and the over-promotes. So I've recorded two or three uh, uh, interviews with uh, uh, folks so far, which are over an hour and a half in length. Don't worry, they're not boring. I tell some good jokes as you go along, and you may think that I'm the biggest joke of all, uh, but you will enjoy them. Anyhow, book your tickets for the show. Uh, uh, doors open at 9 o'clock on the 9th of May, a Saturday. Just sit back, sit on your sofa all day, and enjoy what we have to offer. Only 9.99. link on the website. Now, I mentioned earlier that I would be talking about companies misleading. We've already dealt with Bidstack at the top of the show. Uh, one of the other companies which has, uh, uh, to my view, in the past couple of weeks, deceived investors uh, with an RNS reach is our old favourite, Vasarian. Vasarian, you will recall, uh, I've had run-ins with its shareholders too. Uh, they led a campaign uh, to uh, encourage folks to write to my wife's employer and to try and get her fired for being married to me. Uh, well, I guess, you know, Vissarian shareholders, my mother-in-law, takes take similar views about my wife's wisdom in marrying me. Uh, but uh, that was one of their responses. Uh, there were a few other things which they did, uh, tempted, tempting to go around calling me a paedophile, really very, very witty, uh, and other things. Their objection to me is that I have, I think, three times this year uh, managed to force Vasarian to make statements via RNS uh, to clarify things which he'd either uh, said which were not true or things which he hadn't said and should have said under uh, RNS rules. Again, 
the nomad, and uh, remember, it uh, works its way through nomads. Canaccord, the last nomad, resigned. It's now with SP Angel, a company that's happy to act for proven frauds. Uh, 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 but uh, the nomads signed off on things and then they're forced to put other things out. Uh, but only because I spend at least an hour a day, it seems to me, writing letters to AIM regulations about companies that offend. All in all, uh, 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 Vasarian shareholders seem to think that the way to stop uh, uh, Vasarian being forced to correct the untruths and the deceptions that it tells uh, is by getting my wife sacked or having a go at me. Really, how childish. When you're up against people with that sort of intellect, uh, you kind of know you're on to a winner. Anyhow, what's the latest uh, 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 um, uh, uh, misdeception uh, uh, that we have from Vasarian? Well, it came out a couple of days, a couple of, about a week ago, uh, that uh, um, we had an announcement that uh, Rolls-Royce, quote, chooses to partner a Vasarian subsidiary and uh, a Manchester University uh, Innovation Centre. Right, Rolls-Royce chooses to partner. Uh, the, that was the headline. The text uh, used the words, following an open innovation call, Rolls-Royce has chosen to partner. If you read that, and I read it time and time again, if you read that, you got the distinct impression that somehow Rolls-Royce was leading the process it was driving the process, that it was an import to Rolls-Royce. And that is how the market reacted, uh, responded to it. It read that, and the shares were marked higher. But actually, that wasn't what happened. Uh, I spoke to uh, Rolls-Royce. Uh, I do happen to know the, uh, the head of the press office there. Uh, he used to be a journalist before he obviously decided he wanted to go and make real money and move to the dark side. So that's uh, Rick Ray, uh, uh, formerly uh, of The Guardian, although I worked with him at Agent France Press, AFX, uh, Extel. Uh, uh, but uh, Rick uh, 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 put me on to the person in the press office dealing with this, and he said quite clearly uh, that we uh, Rolls-Royce only has a steering role. It's not driving the project, it is involved in it. I asked him if it was significant, and he said, no, this is a very minor project. And then I asked him how much money Rolls-Royce was putting in. And that was the critical thing. Rolls-Royce isn't putting a cent into this project. It's not putting in any money. If you read the release, you kind of thought, Rolls-Royce, well, it's got, you know, the big balance sheet. It will be funding it uh, and funding this innovation forward. And what Vasarian brings to the party is its technology, its kit, its IP. Uh, but in fact, no, uh, Vasarian may bring its technology, its IP to the party. Uh, and I suspect that's worth uh, bugger all. But it looks like Vasarian's also funding it as well. Rolls-Royce is there for the name to give this credibility to allow the company to ramp its shares. But effectively, uh, not only is Vasarian doing the work, but Vasarian's funding it as well. Uh, why have Rolls-Royce there? Why have Rolls-Royce there? Of course, why have Rolls-Royce there? To make this sound like it is a big deal. To give the impression that Rolls-Royce is actually putting money in when it's not. Uh, you know, I would have hoped that in a properly uh, a functioning market, uh, if Vasarian had uh, a nomad 
which actually gave a flying fuck about the rules uh, and wanted to follow AIM Rule 10 to give something which is clear and explicit guidance and is not misleading, it would have said, this project is being funded by Vasarian. Uh, Rolls-Royce is not putting a cent into it. Uh, 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 that is what it should have said, because that is the truth. But it didn't. SP Angel allowed uh, Vasarian to craft its release in the way that it did. Why is Vasarian doing it? Why does Bids? It's the same reason as Bidstack. Why do companies do things which they know there is a vague possibility, even on AIM, there is a vague possibility that you might get into trouble, largely because of share profits and the work that myself and my colleagues do. We might just pick up on the fact that you're putting out a deceptive release and we might make uh, uh, the lives of the oxymorons around at AIM regulations such hell that they actually do something about it and force you to correct it. Why run the risk of it? Because when you're forced to correct, it is you normally, it is vaguely humiliating. Of course, most of your shareholders will ignore that uh, and won't regard it as humiliating and they won't regard it as a victory for, for the forces of evil that share profits. But there will be some who will and it will be seen as bad. It may also sour your relationship with your nomad. If the nomad uh, is repeatedly uh, uh, forced to put out RNSs correcting misleading RNSs by the people around the same regulation, that gets kind of embarrassing. And after a while, the nomad may just tire of it and decide it's not worth uh, the candle. So why would you do it? Why would you behave in that way? Good companies don't need to behave in that way. It is only bad companies that need to. The answer, of course, is that Vasarian is a bad company. Uh, it never generates a cent of cash and it never will. And uh, it is currently being funded uh, via a death spiral facility. It's an unusual death spiral, uh, spiral facility in that uh, the amount that is raised depends on the share price. Uh, the number of shares being issued to Landstead, which is a fairly scuzzy death spiral provider, is fixed at 15.75 million or something like that. Uh, the amount that is payable to Vasarian depends on the volume-weighted average uh, share price uh, uh, in the time and the run-up to the end of each month over 24 months. If in any given month the VWAP is 53p, then uh, Vasarian would receive 124th of six million quid uh, 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 before costs in that month. If the VWAP is more than 53p, it raises more than that. If it is less than 53p, it raises less than that. Therefore, Vasarian has a very, very strong motivation to ramp the share price at every possible opportunity. There may actually be a little bit of a conflict of interest here. Some one organization, and we have not been told who, is earning commission on this death spiral uh, and will earn commission which will be greater the more money is raised. It's not a fixed commission. And this is a commission for introducing Vasari into the death spiral provider. Now, historically, the people who normally make those introductions are the nomads and brokers. Uh, I have pushed Vasarian and uh, discredited and disgraced nomad of last resort SP Angel on this matter. 
is the firm that is getting the introductory commission? SP Angel, yes or no? I've yet to get an answer on this, uh, but I believe this is almost certainly is. And that means that SP Angel is financially motivated to have as high a share price as possible because the higher the share price, the more commission it gets and the more money uh, it has for Coke and hookers. Uh, So on that basis, not only are the people crafting the RNS or RNS reach, uh, uh, that is to say the team at Vasarian, incentivised to make it as bullish as possible, even if it is actually fundamentally misleading, as the Rolls-Royce one was, but the people at SP Angel, uh, and of course they're totally uncorruptible individuals, but if were they to be marginally less corrupt individuals, uh, less corruptible individuals, uh, uh, then they might be tempted to wave through a misleading uh, and uh, a ramptastic RNS because it means more money for them. It's, of course, the conflict at the heart of the uh, uh, regulatory system is that nomads and brokers can sometimes be financially incentivized to allow companies to deceive their investors for financial gain. I'm not saying that is happening here, but it is telling. It is telling that there has been no admission from SP Angel or Vasarian as to who is getting that commission. I would have thought that it would be in the interest of a transparent market. It would be advisable if SP Angel or Vasarian came clean on which organisation is getting the introductory commission. If it is SP Angel, then people, I think, would be able to form their own judgment. The bottom line, though, here is why do companies uh, put out statements which do appear uh, to be skirting on the edge of breaching AIM Rule 10, i.e. they're not misleading. It is because it is in their financial interest. It is always, it is always to do with the company's, or nearly always, to do with the company's ability to raise funding. It can be for another reason. Uh, you may remember that with Vasarian, its shares spiked about a year ago when it said that it was going to get an investment for 15% of the company from a Chinese institution, BIGT. This is a company without a website, an office, a telephone number or anything. Of course, it's a very real company in China. Don't, don't think anything else. No sniggering at the back, please. Uh, the shares spiked on that. And Neil Ricketts, the boss of Vasarian, sold uh, 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 three or four hundred thousand quid's worth of shares into that spike. That was at one thirty-seven, more than double today's share price. Uh, that is another reason why some companies want to push up the share price to allow insiders to dump stock on the market. But normally, it is to do with the companies themselves needing to raise money. If you see a company misleading investors with a release which is just not a fair reflection of what's going to happen. It should in itself be a red flag and a reason that the stock is uninvestable. But it is also very often a clue to something makes you think about why it is behaving in this way. Uh, In case of Vasarian and Bidstack, It is all to do with the price at which new equity is effectively being placed out at. Right. Thank you very much for listening to this edition of Share Profits Radio, edition 29, sponsored by Open Orphan. 
I do hope you'll book tickets to the Share Profit Shares Conference on May 9th uh, uh, for uh, 70 hours of really interesting video uh, and audio content. And uh, if you enjoyed listening to this, I'll be back with another edition of Share Profits Radio in about a week's time. And uh, if you can't wait that long to hear my dulcet tones, I do do a podcast every day on Share Profits it's called Bearcast. That occurs, comes out seven days a week. Usually, don't do one on Christmas Day, but I usually would do one on Boxing Day and Christmas Eve. And there's also another nine articles every day of the week on Share Profits. It's amazing value, and we do some great work. Uh, so why not sign up? Uh, just five ninety nine a month. If you are a member, I will speak to you tomorrow. If you're a cheapskate, I'll speak to you in a week's time. Whatever. Keep safe and uh, keep well.